You're listening to the Selling Energy Podcast, turbocharging the success of sales professionals around the world. Here's your host, Wall Street Journal bestselling author and award-winning sales trainer, Mark Jewell. Work for others and let others work for you. There are not enough hours in the day to find every potential customer the old-fashioned way. Taking the time to locate and forge partnerships with non-competitive vendors or service providers is one of the best ways to maximize your time in finding new prospects. Here's an example that illustrates the point perfectly. A company that sells bottled water to office buildings and an interior commercial plant maintenance vendor were both trying to find new leads and increase sales. Neither one of them was really fond of getting thrown out of buildings that had no soliciting signs throughout, but they both knew that they had to grow their respective businesses. One day, the plant vendor said to the water vendor, you know what? When you deliver water to your current customers, what do you do? You walk from the front of the customer's office suite all the way to the back to the staff kitchen to deliver the full bottles and cart away the empties, right? The next time you make your deliveries, maybe you could do me a favor and take the long way in each suite, looking left and right as you pass through. See if they have any plants at all, and if they do, notice if they're fancy plants or plain ones, and notice how healthy they look. Oh, and when you drop off your invoice for the office manager, ask them if they take care of their plants themselves or if they outsource the work. Do you think you could do that for me? Excited by the potential to get the inside scoop on dozens of office suites he had never visited, the plant vendor continued with his part of the deal. By the way, whenever I go into my client's offices, he said, the first place I have to go is the kitchen to get water for the plants. While I'm there, I'll look around the kitchen to see whether or not they have bottled water at all. If they do, I'll make note of what size bottle they buy, whether it's those big round ones or the neat square stacking ones. And then I'll see how many full and empty bottles they have at hand. That should give you a good idea of how much water they buy each month, right? The arrangement made so much sense, the pact was sealed on the spot. The plant and water vendors agreed to do a little research and give each other data on their customers' needs for each of the other's products, and the name and number of each office manager to boot. As you might imagine, their sales skyrocketed as a result. There was no more sneaking past security guards, no more knocking on strange doors, no more ignoring no soliciting signs. They were both already behind enemy lines. They just needed to share easy-to-collect data that could be leveraged to grow their respective revenues. Now, how does this apply to energy efficiency? If you're in the HVAC business, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, you should be partnering with a lighting vendor. You should say, quote, give me a list of 12 questions I could ask while I'm on site doing my HVAC improvements so I can tell whether or not this might be a good prospect for a lighting upgrade. I don't have to know everything there is about aluminum engineering, right? I just need to know these 12 questions that you would ask so that we can determine if it's a worthwhile prospect for you to pursue. In return, I'll give you my list of 12 questions, and every time you're doing a lighting audit, maybe you could ask the chief engineer my list of questions to send the answers back to me. If I score it, they become a legitimate prospect, I'll follow up with them. We can give each other referral fees for deals that actually close, or just monitor the flow of leads back and forth to make sure the sharing seems to be mutually beneficial. That's a great way to get cross-promotion, very informally. Your non-competitive colleagues are in buildings all day long. Why are you not having them carry your questionnaire in there, taking five minutes with the chief engineer? It would have taken you five hours to get a meeting. How are your partners already there? Have your collaborator ask the questions that you need to have answered in order to determine if this prospect represents a good one for your offerings. And if the answer is yes, then act on it immediately. And if you close the sale, certainly be sure to thank your collaborator. You now owe him a great debt of gratitude. By the way, don't wait for your collaborator to score you a hot lead to put effort into trying to score one for him. Have your people carry his questionnaire to your job sites. It's quite rewarding to help a client close a sale. And the psychic debt that such a sale evokes is a wonderful incentive for your collaborator to redouble his efforts to do the same thing for you.
no player too small. Salespeople often complain about not being able to connect with higher level decision makers at networking events and trade shows. Sales professionals know that it often doesn't matter. Here's why. Assume an organization that you've been researching takes the time to participate in a networking event or trade show. However, since the C-level execs are often too busy to attend, they send their delegates, mid-level execs who can, among other things, represent the organization and report back on who else was there. In many cases, those delegates will be fairly low in the totem pole, perhaps even interns or brand new hires. It's unlikely they'll have a full picture of the organization's needs, much less the ability to approve a proposal from you. However, they may have valuable insights into the company, including which players would likely be involved in evaluating your offerings. Bottom line, if approached with respect and decorum, these non-decision makers may provide a fast track to the right people. Here's how this phenomenon plays out in real life. Suppose you're at a conference or networking event. You scan the room for decision makers. <laughs> what you see instead are small clusters of people standing in corners like nervous adolescents at a high school dance. They're used to being ignored because they don't have a lot of clout within their own organizations. They may be there because their boss told them to attend. A salesperson would ignore these folks as not having the power to effect change. A sales professional knows otherwise. He approaches as many of those delegates as possible. He asks each how long they've been with their respective companies, how they're enjoying the experience thus far, and what they actually do day to day. Note the order and tone of the questions. Each interaction is a human conversation rather than some cold call qualification script being acted out in person. Now, if you take this approach, each of your conversation partners will eventually ask, so what do you do? At that point, you'll give your 15-second elevator pitch custom-made for your prospect's segment, industry, organization, and role. Then you'll ask casually, I know you work for a large organization, and you've only been there for a short time. That said, do you know if your organization is even interested in energy efficiency initiatives? It's highly likely your conversation partner will have no idea, which is fine, provided that you follow up your questions properly. You might add, I'm wondering who over there at your shop might be interested in energy efficiency initiatives. Do you happen to know who that might be? You may be shocked to hear that the in-house energy guru sits only a couple of cubicles away from this newly hired exec. Or perhaps you'll hear, I don't know, but I think it's Joe Smith. I probably have his email address on my phone. And even if I don't, you could certainly guess his email address. Everyone in our company uses the same protocol, first initial and the first five letters of the last name, and then at bigcompany.com. If you're lucky enough to hear that your conversation partner sees your ultimate target on a regular basis, you might say, wow, what a small world. You know, you'd be doing me the greatest personal favor if you were to give one of my cards to Mr. Smith when you see him next. In fact, here are two of my business cards, one for you and one for him. Would you be willing to hand carry this card to him? By the way, I've never had someone refuse to do this favor for me. In most cases, the quote-unquote messenger places my business card in my target's hand the very next day. Always be sure to take your new friend's card, because even if he's an under-the-radar staffer, it's great to drop his name when you connect with the person whose contact information you are given. When you reach out to your target, you might start with, I met this very helpful young man named Brandon at the XYZ conference last Friday. I understand he just started working in a Chicago office. When I asked him who in your organization was responsible for energy-related projects, he was kind enough to volunteer your name and suggested that I reach out to you. You never know who may be holding a key that can open a door of opportunity for you. Talk to people as human beings, not networking pawns. Genuinely network. Make those connections. And remember, the most useful chains usually have far more than two links in them. A networking story. 
So what do you do when you meet someone at a networking event who works in an entirely different industry than the one in which you're prospecting? I'm sure many of us would be inclined to say, nice to meet you, and immediately move on to someone more relevant. If you find yourself in this situation, don't walk away. Here's a story that demonstrates the value of making connections outside of your own industry. Not too long ago, I met a colleague for lunch, and he looked very downtrodden. I said, hey, what's going on? He said, last night I went to this trade org event. I just wasted my time. I said, well, what are you talking about? You're usually so upbeat, and that audience is full of prospects for you. He continued with exasperation. I spent 20 minutes pitching to a guy, and then I asked, what do you do? And he said, I sell rugs. I wasted 20 minutes of my networking time talking to a guy who sells rugs. There are two aspects of this story worth noting. First, if you knew ahead of time that this person sold carpet, would you have used a different elevator pitch and or spent a different amount of your valuable networking time with that person? Second, what might that new and improved elevator pitch have sounded like? Here's one way the interaction could have gone. Hey, how you doing? I'm John. I'm Bill. Hello, Bill. So what brings you to this event tonight? I work for XYZ Carpets. Oh, I guess you sell rugs. Yes, we do. Whom do you sell to? Commercial offices, mostly. Aha. You know, I sell to a lot of commercial office buildings as well. Who are some of your favorite clients around town? Equity office and Boston properties, he replies. So I bet you do work for Tom in Embarcadero 4. Oh, yeah, we helped him with several tenant fit-outs last year. He's a great guy. Well, yeah, Tom is a great guy. I've known him for years. Who else do you sell to? I bet we sell to a lot of the same folks. Before long, you'll be exchanging business cards and perhaps even walking out with a deal to swap leads, cross-promoting each other's services. Now that's how it's supposed to work. Get yourself a seat at the table. Have you ever been in a situation where a prospect tells you that they need to talk to the rest of their committee before making any decisions? Committees are notorious for vetoing or tabling projects, so you should be ready to address the situation up front. Unless you've prepared your prospect to give a stellar presentation and to fight for the project on your mutual behalf, there will be no one at the committee meeting to address objections, questions, or misunderstandings. This puts your proposal at a high risk of being rejected. Wouldn't it be a lot better if you could be in the same room during the meeting? After all, you're the expert, and you're best equipped to not only explain the benefits of your offering, but also field any questions or comments that may arise. In my experience, people don't want vendors to attend internal meetings because they're afraid they'll monopolize the meeting and or overhear some confidential information. Here's an example of a conversation you might have with your prospect to get them to agree to let you sit in on the meeting. Prospect, I've got to take this to the committee. You say, I understand, when does the committee meet? Every Thursday. How long is your typical committee meeting? About an hour. How many topics are typically discussed at the meeting? About a half a dozen. Okay, so if everyone gets to the meeting on time, you've got an hour to talk about six topics. That's an average of 10 minutes per topic. Am I correct? Yeah, that's right. What do you think the chances are of my attending that meeting? Hmm, I don't think vendors are allowed to attend our committee meetings. Well, let me be frank. Do you think there's anybody in the world who's more capable of addressing questions of this project than I am? If you want to get your project approved, notice I say your instead of mine to get the prospect more emotionally invested in seeing the project approved. The best thing you can do is get me in that room. And I'll make a deal with you. If you have 10 minutes for each topic, you get me in the room at whatever point in the agenda you want me there, invite me into the room just for that agenda item, and I'll leave immediately after presenting our proposal and fielding questions. Notice again, I use the word our, not my. I will not exceed my allotted time, I promise, and I will not be present during any confidential discussions. In other words, I can sit in the lobby, you can bring me in at minute 20, I'll be out of there at minute 30, graciously thanking you for inviting me to join the meeting. 
After I leave, you folks can continue with your other agenda items. I can assure you that in three or four minutes, I can make a compelling case to make sure you get your project approved. And in the next four to six minutes, I can answer any questions that come up in the wake of that little presentation. Frankly, if you had me in the room, I think you'd have a greater chance of getting your project approved. If you put these types of parameters around your request of participation, you might actually get invited to sing for your supper at that meeting. And you'll have an excellent chance of emerging from that meeting with everyone else primed to say yes when the vote to approve the project is taken after you leave the room. Now keep in mind that even with the above-referenced impassioned plea to be invited to the meeting, some killjoy on the committee may still veto your participation. So what are you supposed to do then? Let's be realistic. In many cases, the decision to approve your project will be made in a room you've never entered by folks you've never met at a time you're unaware of. The only way to prevail in circumstances such as these is to arm your internal champion with a compelling proposal that will stand on its own without you in the room. But what does that mean? It means you have to equip your internal champion with a compelling and memorable 15-second elevator pitch. You have to give him a one-page proposal in unlocked PDF format so he can liberally, quote-unquote, borrow from it to insert your ideas into his management brief or capital request. You also have to provide a one-page financial analysis that is both transparent and compelling. I like to say, with the exception of the spoken elevator pitch, you should be able to give your materials to the world-famous mime Marcel Marceau and see your project approved behind closed doors. I heard a story the other day about a national sales manager for a large HVC vendor in the Midwest who had done exactly that. He had given a California-based contractor an elevator pitch, a one-page proposal, and a one-page financial analysis using the skills he had acquired at one of our week-long efficiency sales professional boot camps. Sure enough, the contractor was able to carry those expertly crafted tools to his customer and close a $500,000 HVAC project using the Midwestern vendor's equipment. Don't fear the C-suite. A lot of people are uncomfortable selling to the C-suite, chief financial officer, chief operating officer, chief executive officer, etc. Why? I think one of the main reasons people are intimidated is that they haven't had much experience interacting with that level of executive, and therefore they have little or no insight into what those folks get paid to do. Just remember, C-level folks are human beings, and it doesn't take too much mental gymnastics to imagine what they care about. For example, if you find yourself addressing a CEO, here are the two most important questions you should be answering in your presentation. How will my offering make this organization easier to manage? And how will my offering make this enterprise more valuable? Think about it. The board of directors hired the CEO to answer those two questions on a daily basis. Your job is to help that CEO connect the dots between your offering and a better answer to those two questions. His job depends on it, and so does your sale. So with all that in mind, be sure to keep your presentation concise. And remember, the higher up you get on the corporate ladder, the less price matters. Demonstrate how your offering can make your prospect's organization easier to manage and more valuable. Price can come later, and only after you've convinced your prospect of your offering's true value.